Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 16B, an interview on Lincoln and the abolitionist movement with Kate Maser. I'm really excited to welcome Kate Maser to the show today. Uh, Kate is an associate professor of 19th century American history at Northwestern University and author of numerous books on emancipation, reconstruction, and Lincoln, including just this year, Until Justice Be Done, America's First Civil Rights Movement from Revolution to Reconstruction, which looks at the first civil rights movement, the long fight for African-American freedom. We've been touching on the struggle practically since the start of this podcast. Sometimes it's a deep current that's there, but the nation's political leaders are doing a good job not talking about it. And other times the struggle over slavery bursts forth like a terrible storm that threatens to wreck the country if a compromise can't be found. In my episode on Lincoln, we talked about how he never liked slavery, but he wasn't an abolitionist either until well into the Civil War. So today I thought we'd get deeper into that journey for the nation, for Lincoln. Where did the abolitionist movement come from? How did Lincoln join it? And how did he get to be the president who freed the slaves? Uh, Kate, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Me too. Me too. Uh, And let's jump to it. Uh, Let's start with the abolitionist movement crank the clock back, the abolitionists were Americans who wanted to abolish slavery. But where did they come from? How did they grow? Well, I think first um, and foremost, we want to envision the earliest and most passionate abolitionists were enslaved people themselves. Um, There was nothing like experiencing um, captivity in Africa, forced uh, migration across the ocean, Uh, captivity in North America, an entirely new place, being forced to labor, not having any choice in where you worked or who you married and whether your relatives were sold away. There was nothing like that experience for turning you into an abolitionist. And um, we can see accounts from very early on from people who were enslaved all over the Western Hemisphere, if they were able to get free, speaking out against the abuses of, of slavery. Um, The American Revolution itself gave a lot of momentum to a kind of public movement for abolition. And one of the the features of that is um, the growing number of enslaved people who become free as a part, uh, in the course of the American Revolution or demand their freedom. So um, people are uh, escaping from slavery during the military conflicts of the revolution. They are joining uh, the British forces when the British invite them to. They are joining American forces in some, or the Patriot forces in some cases. And then in places uh, like Massachusetts, for example, we see um, people who were enslaved petitioning the government to abolish slavery in the state of, of Massachusetts and oh. other places, kind of saying, look, you, you guys say you're fighting for your freedom. We want our freedom, too. Um, and so that's one thread. Um, and there are a lot of white Americans at the time who also want to set the nation, the new nation as it's forming, on a course toward freedom. If they don't, many of them want to end slavery immediately. They want to have that generally be the, the course forward of the nation. And among the white folks who were most likely to be abolitionists early on in the 18th century were Quakers. So Quaker religion um, had a kind of orientation toward equality and um, many Quakers were the, the best allies of African-Americans in this early phase of abolition. Um, And I'll just say that going forward, I mean, so this is pushing the story back. Sometimes people think the abolitionist movement really started in the 1830s 
Um, David Walker was a, a black man who famously published Walker's Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World out of Boston in 1829. And then soon after, William Lloyd Garrison starts publishing The Liberator in 1831. And that, people say, is the, the birth of the radical abolitionist movement. So what I'm saying is we can start by thinking about the late 18th century, what enslaved people were doing, the currents of the American Revolution before we get up to like the 1830s and the growth of the increasing growth of a kind of biracial uh, movement against slavery uh, that takes shape in the North that kind of foments really defensive reactions by Southerners. You know, you're probably you and your uh, listeners are familiar with the gag rule um, and things like that. So, you know, this movement kind of takes shape um, in the North. And, and one of the things that I write about in my in my book, Until Justice Be Done, is um, a part of the anti-slavery movement that's that sometimes got short shrift from historians, and that is the people who really took that movement into politics. So we often think of, of the kind of principled, high-minded Garrison, for example, who thought that the United States was so corrupted by slavery that you shouldn't even participate in politics because you're selling out to a corrupt system. Wow. Um, but there's a whole lot of other abolitionists who are basically really committed to getting people elected and changing politics in the federal government and in the states. And so, you know, in my view, the abolitionist movement doesn't peter out with kind of the, the downfall of or the the diminishment of the radical abolitionists like Garrison, um, it actually gets pumped up in political conflicts during the 1830, um, 1840s and 1850s. And so, you know, we can talk about that as we bring Lincoln into the story. Um, but there are, there's actually a, a growing and more expansive and more popular version of abolitionism that is more mainstream in a certain sense to American politics than like what you might envision as like a tiny band of radicals just on the margins. Of American politics. I'm curious, how much, how wedded is, say, anti-slavery thoughts to abolitionist thoughts? You know, like you mentioned, you think about the Compromise of 1820, all about the expansion of slavery, but that comes before one of those uh, decades that people think of as that's the start of the abolitionist movement. So are those same or are they different? Well, I think historians have spent a lot of time kind of, uh, I know this will sound a little bit um, patronizing, but like splitting hairs about the ideological differences among uh, people who oppose slavery, right? So it's like, well, uh, you know, the Garrisonians were the ones who were, took this incredibly principled stance against slavery. And they also happened to favor like equal rights for women, for example, whereas there were a lot of other people who, uh, were incredibly anti-slavery, were also more conventional on the question of gender, and also wanted to go into politics full bore. So if you, instead of um, emphasizing those differences among the many Northerners, Black and white, who uh, opposed slavery from a moral standpoint and wanted to try to do something about it, yeah. if you stop kind of splitting hairs about it and really see them all as people who were, you know, in many ways allied, but approach the question somewhat differently, sure, sure. then you can see then this movement comes into view as a much more sustained movement. And, and a lot of historians are talking precisely the way you're, you're um, describing right now, where the Missouri Compromise of 1820 isn't just this flash in the pan where, you know, we don't see stuff like that again till 1850 or, or whatever, but there's actually a lot of continuity um, from the 1820s going into the 1830s. It's just that different kinds of um, ideas take shape. And then there's a, there's a kind of groundswell of social movement activism in the 1830s because of this kind of uh, religious ferment and stuff like that, that you didn't really see um, earlier than that. But, it, but, but, the, but it, it's, 
it's kind of like an, a, a flowering of a certain set of ideas rather than something that's totally distinct from what came before. So in my show, we've talked about some of those big slavery controversies, Compromise of 1820, Compromise of 1850, I mean, Civil War, frankly. What are some other ones that people should know about to really understand? You mentioned, um, for example, the religious movements in the 1830s. I'm also curious, like, when did the first state start abolishing slavery and, and who was leading that fight? Are there any other milestones that people should just be aware of to really get that story? Right. So if you want to think about anti-slavery um, sentiment in the North, you, you cannot neglect the fact that slavery was legal and practiced in all of the northern states and all the states in the Union, except for Vermont, when uh, the United States became a nation. And so, you know, if you want to see evidence that actually a lot of white Americans wanted to see slavery go by the wayside, all you have to do is look at the state governments of New York, which had the, the largest number of enslaved people of any state, you know, north of Virginia and Maryland, uh, decides to gradually abolish slavery. Um, you know, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, I, Pennsylvania's gradual emancipation statute is the first one. It's in 1780. Um, and so even before the United States Constitution. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is an example of like, let, you know, let's not forget that sometimes people say, oh, but those were so they were such lame measures. They were gradual. And, you know, they are frustrating in a certain sense. They didn't immediately free everyone. They freed sort of the next generation of people. But what they really did accomplish was to um, abolish slavery over time in these northern states. And um, and so that's an example of like a, a strong current of anti-slavery thinking um, in the North. And so I think that's one thing. And another thing I would put on the table, and you may have talked about this in earlier episodes, is the conflict over annexation of Texas. <laughs> yes. I did not totally realize until working on this book just how important the entire conflict over Texas, which really lasted from, you know, 1835 to 1845. And that's not even the in considering the fact that it then puts into motion the Mexican-American War and the yep. stuff that comes out of that. You know, that is huge for um, persuading a lot of northerners that um, southern or southern politicians, particularly southern Democrats, that that they were going to voraciously pursue the expansion of slavery over every other priority. And they were going to keep wanting northerners to fall into line behind it. And the annex, the whole debate about Texas is a kind of emblem of that. And so as a result of the debate about Texas, the refusal for a while to annex Texas, then going ahead and doing it. And it's very, very destabilizing to the Democratic Party. And it really gives a shot in the arm to anti-slavery organizing because it just is proof of what they had been arguing for quite a while, which is the slave power, right? Like this kind of, they start calling it the slave power yeah. is in charge of our federal government. And we have to do something to, you know, they're aristocratic, they're un-American, they don't work, they don't believe in the value of work. And we have to do something to stop them before they really pervert this country. Like, I, I don't know if they had lobbyists back then, but it feels like that was the first lobbying group, <laughs> you know? The slave power? Yeah. Or, that, or the, the slave power itself. The slave power itself, you know? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, like the they were there. literally in office, too. They didn't necessarily need lobbyists because they were actually in the, in the halls of power. <laughs> Who needs <yeah>. a middleman? <laughs> right, right. Um, so we, we talked about uh, all these things were happening and Lincoln's growing up in the middle of this. You know, I mean, he becomes a congressman during you mentioned the Mexican-American War. Uh, and he was born in Kentucky. His father moves his family to Illinois. And, and Lincoln later says that the reason uh, that his dad claimed he moved him uh, to Illinois 
to get him away from slavery was part of the reason. Uh, I've read that his dad did not like competing with slave labor. And he also belonged to a church with anti-slavery congregation. So, so we have Lincoln born in Kentucky, but he's an anti-slavery guy. And, and so was his dad. How common was that in the South to have Southerners who didn't like slavery? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I went back and, and checked this out. I mean, first, before Thomas Lincoln moved to Illinois, he moved to Indiana. And I, I'm not trying to, yes. you know, advertise yes. my book, but like this is precisely the kind of migration that I, I actually write about a fair amount in my book, mm-hmm. uh, my new book, Until Justice Be Done, in which everyone um, check and, it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in which, so there's uh, particularly, I just think it's really interesting to connect this to Lincoln, especially in the early decades of the 19th century. Um, And let's not forget, this was also part of a process of dispossession of Native Americans who already lived in these regions, right? So actually, Kentucky on the south side of the Ohio River is settled by white people before these areas north of the Ohio River, which uh, like Ohio and Indiana and Illinois, which remain, um, you know, areas where Native people have a lot of control and a lot of power. It's only gradually at the end of the 18th century that white settlers start moving into that uh, Northwest Territory, which is north of the Ohio River. And so so the fact that Thomas Lincoln moves to Indiana from Kentucky, so he's just like hopping over the Ohio River from a slave state to a free state um, in 1816 is and if and let's say to the extent that, you know, and we don't know that much about him, but let's say that he really didn't like living around the institution of slavery and he would rather live in a free state. There were a fair number of Kentuckians, white Kentuckians and Virginians who made that choice, who moved from Kentucky or Virginia over the Ohio River into Ohio, Indiana and Illinois because they didn't want to, as you said, uh, they didn't want to compete with slave labor. Maybe they thought slavery was a, a bad influence on culture and society in general. That sensibility might or might not be connected, I think, to real sympathy or identification with enslaved people, right? But you could think that slavery was actually was a, a terrible institution without necessarily um, thinking that, you know, you n- wanted to live near Black people if you were a white person. So there's, so there's a lot of complicated um, dynamics, which we can maybe talk about. But, um, but I just, I, I found in my research, and it was just really interesting that there were a lot of, there were a fair number of um, anti-slavery religious leaders, like pro- ministers who were Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, who, who made that move too. And they sometimes started actively anti-slavery congregations just north of the Ohio River in these, um, in the Southern kind of tier of Midwestern states. So Thomas Lincoln, you know, could, we can really see him a- a- as part of that in a way. And, um, and, and you can imagine that uh, Abraham Lincoln, you know, would have grown up in that kind of context. Interesting. So, so you did have Southerners who anti-slavery. They just didn't say Southerner for long. <laughs> they left. Yeah. They and and I should add. I mean, there's actually a lot of really um, interesting ferment around slavery in Kentucky, in particular. Mm. So, um, you know, you all probably have talked about Henry Clay, but Clay, yeah. uh, you know, spoke in favor of gradual emancipation for a while early in his career before he stopped doing that. Um, but, you know, there's in Kentucky in particular, there's actually a fair amount of discussion about slavery as a problem, um, maybe eventually trying to get rid of it. So obviously the key thing is white Kentuckians don't do that, right? Uh, they right. don't actually uh, deliver on that. But um, but but Kentucky, even some some white Kentuckians who remained in Kentucky actually felt pretty ambivalent about slavery. So so one thing I've seen a lot in the history of America is that just because you oppose slavery does not mean you're not a raging racist. 
Um, there are plenty of states and territories that outlawed slavery and outlawed African-Americans from entering their borders. So we know Lincoln doesn't like slavery. When do we get a first sense of how he feels toward African-Americans? Does it come up in his law or political career? Um, yeah, so it's it's an interesting question. And I think, you know, there's a, a few different ways to approach that. I haven't studied his legal career in depth, but I know that he uh, sometimes represented African-Americans in like everyday type of lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Other times he actually represented slaveholders in, you know, attempts to recapture uh, people who had run away from slavery. And so like Lincoln as a lawyer was taking, you know, clients from wherever he could get them and not necessarily particularly moral with a moral mission in his practice of law. Unlike, by the way, Sam and Chase, who um, really went out of his way in Ohio to take cases involving the rights of fugitive slaves. Um, but so Lincoln, one thing I wanted to, to mention is that, you know, we could think about Lincoln and his personal um, life a little bit. We know and um, there's a really there's a there's an interesting and well documented story about Lincoln's relationship with the man who was his barber in Springfield, Illinois, oh, really? a man named William de Florville, who was born in Haiti and had migrated from Haiti originally into Louisiana, then made his way up the um, Mississippi River and ended up in Springfield, Illinois. And he became a very prosperous barber and uh, bought real estate. He was active in church congregations. He was a musician. He published poetry in the Springfield newspaper. I mean, he was a very pro kind of prominent man in Springfield. And uh, as he made money, he wanted to buy real estate. And so Lincoln actually got his hair cut by William de Florville, but also um, worked as his lawyer. Like Florville hired Lincoln to be his lawyer for real estate transactions. And, and I'm presuming like African-American man from Haiti. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's yeah. a, he's a person of African descent from Haiti yeah. and, oh, and yeah. they, they keep up their relationship. Um, like there's sure. a couple of letters that Florville wrote to Lincoln when Lincoln was president. Um, and so that combined with some other evidence that we have suggests that um, in terms of everyday relationships, Lincoln was a good employer. There were some uh, Black people who worked for Lincoln in the White House, and there's a certain amount of evidence that he went out of his way to make sure, for example, a man named William Johnson, who was from, from Springfield, who traveled to Washington, D.C. when Lincoln became president with Lincoln. Um, Lincoln wanted him to work in the White House, but the existing White House staff who were a kind of were kind of cliquish African American like African Americans who had lived in Washington DC for a long time didn't like Johnson and Lincoln went out of his way to find Johnson a, a job in the Treasury Department um, didn't want to leave him high and dry with no job having you know moved to Washington DC so okay there's that kind of stuff about Lincoln's kind of interpersonal relationships um, with African Americans so insofar as we can know about them those relationships. But um, on the larger question, right, uh, Lincoln, so Lincoln, one, one fact about Lincoln in the 1850s was he was a member of the Illinois Colonization Society. And the Colonization Society, you know, this was a longstanding American institution that drew in prominent white people who really had a hard time imagining that the United States could ever be like a multiracial democracy. And so the solution proposed by the American Colonization Society was that free African-Americans should leave the country because they would be happier and better off in a place that wasn't so racist and wasn't destined uh, to be a white nation is what many of these people thought. And that place was Liberia, the mm. nation of Liberia, which was actually established as a colony of the American Colonization Society. Over in Africa, yeah. 
uh, yeah, the no. Liberia. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Um, in case anyone doesn't have a map in front of them. Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> like not like, right, anywhere in the United States. Um, and so Lincoln, on the one hand, there's a lot of evidence that as his co- political career developed in the second half of the 1850s, he had a tough time imagining what would happen if slavery were ever abolished in the United States. Could this country ever actually uh, exist with everybody being free? And and so colonization was a way of imagining a solution to that. Um, At the same time as he, uh, in his political, in his public life, in his debates with Stephen Douglas, for example, um, explicitly argued against Stephen Douglas's position, which was that uh, the Declaration of Independence was only ever intended to apply to white people, that this is a white man's country, that um, that African Americans who are free only have rights to the extent that whites are willing to grant to kind of get, do them a favor. And Lincoln's position again, 1858, was the Declaration of Independence. The founders of this country intended the Declaration to apply to everyone. Um, that everyone is entitled to the fruits of their labor. So nobody should be forced to work for no pay, the way that slaves are. Um, and and. And that that this somehow that this country is he never would have made the argument that somehow the nation was destined to be a white nation. That was the kind of argument that Democrats made. Lincoln didn't make that argument, despite also kind of being, a, you know, allying himself with the colonization society. So he was uh, many people have said this. He was kind of middle of the road among Republicans of his era, let's say, on the cusp of his election to the presidency. There were. Republicans who were more conservative than he was on issues of race and equality, and there were Republicans who were much more progressive uh, than he was on these questions as well, who were fully for, you know, biracial democracy now. Um, and so Lincoln was somewhere in the middle on all of that. So, so we know where he stood. How, where did this rank in like the issues he cared about? You know, for example, I think Americans eat too much sugar, but that is low on my list of things on my political radar. Slavery, is this like the top of his mind thing? Is it somewhere like a top 10? You know, the conflict over slavery defined his political career. And I, I think, you know, it, it it would be tempting to want to say, oh, yeah, there were a mix of issues. He cared about infrastructure improvements. He wanted, you know, railroads and all that is true. But, you know, when we think about the the, the narrative, which is which is true. It was the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 that pushed Lincoln to come back into politics after he was just like, I'm done with this, right? (laughs) And he comes back in. And why? Because he cannot, he is so against the idea that they're going to, you know, repeal the Missouri Compromise and extend slavery into the territory. And it's really the conflict over the extension of slavery um, and this new idea that it's slavery is going to be, you know, allowed to run kind of rampant and extend and expand that pushes him back into politics. So, you know, it's front and center. And, and so when he's running and when he's getting elected, that's what he cares about. He's like, I'm not going to let slavery expand, but he's not quite an abolitionist yet. That said, I mean, seven states still secede when he's elected because they're convinced he like secretly is like, do you think he secretly was? Was there legitimacy to these southern fears that the second Lincoln's elected, like our way of life is toast? <laughs> um, I mean, I just I want to sort of say this really clearly because um, because I think it's really important and people often misunderstand. Yeah. So Lincoln was 
also really invested in the Amer- the US Constitution. Yes. And so for somebody like Lincoln, you could be as morally disgusted as possible about s- slavery, for example, and still think that that it would be unconstitutional and kind of like inconceivable for somebody to get elected president. And then what would you do? Like wave your magic wand and say that, you know, slavery is suddenly abolished in South Carolina or Alabama or whatever. I mean, just about all Americans, except for some really out there abolitionist sort of theorists, Mm -hmm. believed that the federal government did not have the power to abolish slavery in the states where it already existed. And so Uh, Lincoln didn't think he had that power. So what Lincoln and the Republicans were most committed to was stopping the spread of slavery. They believed the federal government could outlaw slavery in the federal territories. They believed they could outlaw it in the District of Columbia and they, and they could, uh, they could stop it from spreading. And then as James Oakes is most known for making this argument, the historian James Oakes is that they would actually be strangling slavery. So it's not like a status quo kind of situation that they would be stopping the spread and then it would be confined to the states where it already exists. And these Southern states would be surrounded by free states. They, and, and there would be Republican political appointees in the slaveholding states who would you know, be subverting slavery from within Got and it. sort of they would strangle it. But that would not happen immediately, right? So <laughs> that would take a while. Yeah. And so if that is the course toward the final abolition of slavery, it's going to happen, by the way, through state action. It's not going to be the federal government decreeing it. It's going to be states slowly coming to their senses, white Southerners, and saying, wait, we can't do this anymore. So, um, and that's like way out there. So, th- so there's a lot of questions wrapped up in what you asked, but were the, were the people, the secessionists who ultimately like decided that they were out of the union, were they reasonable in thinking that, you know, Lincoln was going to suddenly wave his magic wand and abolish slavery? That's not really what they thought. They, they, they thought that the Republican win in 1860 was the harbinger of things to come that, you know, maybe they were going to, they saw the, the idea that slavery could soon be strangled from without, and that would take a while. They knew that the population of the free states was growing a lot faster than the population of the slave states, right? So that if you can get a Lincoln, Lincoln, an, a sort of anti-slavery president elected on the strength of Northern votes alone, which is what happened you can elect another president and another president and another president on the strength of Northern votes alone. And migration, immigration was happening in the North way more than in the South. And so they're going to be on the losing side of the house of representatives, right? They were going to, and, and so they could see that if there's going to be a sectional realignment of American politics, they're going to lose. And they're just this, these, so what I'm talking about is like Southern slave owners are this embattled. They are used to having a lot of power in American government and they see the writing on the wall that they're soon going to be outnumbered by people who don't agree with them. And this is their last moment to kind of say, we're out because we don't want to live in the country that this country is going to become. So during the civil war, Lincoln finds a magic wand called presidential war powers <laughs> mm-hmm. and he waves it. Right. And the Emancipation Proclamation. Can you can you tell me uh, what all that does and what it doesn't do? Sure. So, right. You're exactly right. So it, so when Lincoln takes office, he thinks he had to he doesn't have any power to abolish slavery and, and blah, blah, blah. But when but suddenly the not suddenly, but over two years, the war is going on and uh, there's a lot of thinking about what can be done under the war powers, both by kind of these extra constitutional powers like, look, you know, 
we have the foremost thing to save this nation is to win the war. And so the government kind of takes up extraordinary powers and Congress does this and so does does Lincoln. And so the most the best example of that is is the Emancipation Proclamation, which is essentially sort of like an executive order um, that he issues as a measure of war. What it does is it declares slaves free in the states that are currently in insurrection. And that's part of the kind of uh, reflection of the fact that it's a war measure. He doesn't think he has the constitutional power to outlaw slavery in um, Kentucky and Maryland and Missouri and uh, Delaware, which hadn't seceded from the Union. So it applies only to the states that were in rebellion. And then there's a couple of occupied places that are carved out of that. It declares that the Union Army, the United States Army and Navy will uphold the proclamation. Mm -hmm. Um, And that means that for the first time in a very official way, as U.S. forces are marching through the slaveholding states, whether it's the army or the navy from the from the shore or from the rivers, they are uh, authorized to um, receive people receive slaves into Union lines. The Emancipation Proclamation also um, authorizes the enlistment of African American men um, into the United States Army and sort of leads to the creation of the Bureau of Colored Troops. And so I think a lot of times, or sometimes people say, well, the Emancipation Proclamation really didn't free a single person. It only applied in places where Lincoln didn't have power because it only applied in the Confederacy. But that is actually not the case, right? It didn't apply in the ways that we might think, again, the magic wand sort of idea, (laughs) but it turned it turned the 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 uh, military forces into essentially an army of liberation, cleared the way for the enlistment of African American men as soldiers, and really changed the shape of the war and terrified the Confederates. By the way, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, in Lincoln's last public speech, which is coming after the fall of Richmond, after Lee has surrendered, he talks about giving some African Americans the right to vote. Unfortunately, at least one person in the crowd really disagreed. John Wilkes Booth. And Lincoln was murdered by Booth a few days later. Where do you think Lincoln stood on racial equality at the end of his life? And where do you think he would have tried to take the country during Reconstruction if he had lived? Yeah, big questions. Um, So first of all, we do know where Lincoln more or less stood on racial equality at the end of his life. I mean, he had um, his attorney general had um, issued a statement that kind of African-Americans are citizens of the, of the United States. They, the Lincoln administration had actually done all kinds of things to promote uh, racial equality and basic civil rights. Um, as, as you mentioned, over time, so first of all, after the Emancipation Proclamation, lots of Northern, it was very controversial in the North, lots of Northerners encouraged him to take it back. He refused. Um, he pushed for the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery permanently and gave Congress the power to um, enforce the abolition of slavery in the states. Um, and and then, you know, kind of most notably, he had never publicly supported black men's right to vote. But but by the end of the war, he publicly said he thought that uh, African-American men who had served in the U.S. forces during the war or were well educated um, should probably be permitted to vote. And this was in relation to what was going on in Louisiana. And so we can see and, and the historian Eric Foner has made this argument very clearly that he was he was evolving. You know, one of the things that is interesting about Lincoln was that he was willing to change his positions, kind of consider the circumstances and and evolve and change as time went on. Um, But of course, we can't know um, (laughs) what he would have done if he had lived. I mean, another thing that's interesting that that, um, Eric Foner has also pointed out is in many, many instances, Lincoln catches up with what the kind of 
uh, left, as you might put it, of his party was thinking all along. So many times it's like the abolitionists, Frederick Douglass, other people like that are pushing a more advanced position that Lincoln soon ends up taking. It takes him a while. They're really frustrated, but he gets there. And so you know, it's reasonable to say that he would have moved from this position that some Black men should be permitted to vote to a position that all men should be permitted to vote on the same terms, regardless of race. It, I mean, that's the direction that the Republican Party was going in general at this point anyway. Mm-hmm. And so it's quite reasonable to think that Lincoln would have done that. I mean, Reconstruction, and you know, I could go on about this for hours, but Reconstruction raises all kinds of really tough problems for this country. And there are, um, I've, I've discovered over time that there are a lot of people who sort of like to imagine that if Lincoln had lived everything would have been great that he somehow again with the magic wand would have you know <laughs> waved that wand and and uh and made and kind of you know we wouldn't have had decades or centuries of um grappling with the questions associated with the legacies of slavery yeah right but lincoln alone could not have done that and no single person could have saved this country from having to come face to face with what you know 250 years of of slavery did to this country and so uh he would have handled the presidency a lot better than andrew johnson i think we can be very clear about that <laughs> yeah um but 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 he still would have faced like the tremendous tremendous overwhelming challenges that reconstruction posed When you look at Lincoln's contribution to the abolitionist movement and where he took it, what lessons in leadership do you see there? Yeah, I mean, I would separate Lincoln from the abolitionist movement. So I think, you know, Lincoln um, never really identified with that movement. And, you know, even Even when when he's actually doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think he was he was actually, you know, friendly with a number of abolitionists and people who were to his left in Congress, like Charles Sumner, but he would not have kind of identified himself that way. Um, But, you know, I think the most obvious, I'm not, I'm going to say something that's very uh, traditional here. You know, the, the, the lesson in leadership from Lincoln that people usually draw is Um, a lesson about pragmatism that, you know, you may have uh, certain principles, um, but the nature of politics and power is that you can't always immediately act on your principles, right? And so you have to not, you have to keep your principles in mind, but also wait for your openings and kind of figure and weigh a bunch of different kinds of concerns. Like for example, early in the war, one of his greatest concerns was to make sure that Kentucky and Maryland in particular did not secede from the union and join the Confederacy. So if he had moved more, so while he had all these abolitionists pushing him to move more quickly against slavery, he was pushing back on that saying, if I do that, I'm afraid I'm going to lose Maryland and Kentucky, these really critical, big populated states on the border uh, with the North, between the North and the South. And he didn't want to risk that. And so, you know, he's an example of um, having a lot of people you had, you know, he had a lot of courage and yeah, a lot of yeah. convictions because people on all sides were mad at him constantly. Um, and he, you know, with, I think advice and you know, support from other people and in conversation with other people found a way to balance those things while also eventually getting to the place where he was a huge factor in, you know, the final abolition of slavery. So, so you say he never considered himself part of the movement. 
did the movement ever consider him their leader, especially say between Emancipation Proclamation and 13th Amendment? Are they like, he's our leader? Or are they still poking him and prodding him and pulling him and saying, come on, Abe, get, hurry up? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think by 1864, when Lincoln is running for re-election and it's famously, you know, kind of, he's running against um, George McClellan and uh, it's unclear who's going to win. It could be very close. And I think, uh, and he had been pressured, as I said before, to, so the, so by now the Democrats are running against basically the abolitionists, the, the policy of abolition that the Republicans and Lincoln had pursued. And McClellan and the Democrats campaign was all about like, oh, is this the country you want to live in? You want to live in a country where there's no slavery, when, you know, these people are, there was all this whole infamous kind of quote unquote miscegenation campaign where the Democrats really mobilized the threat of like interracial sex and marriage to kind of say that the Republicans, you know, this is what they were, this is the world that they wanted and really instill fear in people and play on their, you know, kind of most racist sensibilities. Mm -hmm. And Lincoln, you know, pressed to take a more moderate stance going into the election, did not, uh, and stuck to his guns. And I think won the admiration of a lot of abolitionists um, for doing that. And uh, and then, you know, and then one of the things that I would just urge people to take a look at is, is Frederick Douglass's really amazing um, speech about Lincoln at the dedication of a statue, a monument to Lincoln in Washington, D.C. I'm pretty sure it was in 1876. It won't be uh, on so, the quiz, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you know, pretty long after Lincoln had um, had died and Fre and it's just this remarkable speech where. He, Frederick Douglass says, on the one hand, you know, Lincoln moved so slowly. I was so frustrated with him. He considered Black Americans merely his stepchildren, not really his children, not really part of this community. But he says, I also can't imagine a man better suited to that moment, to the presidency, um, that actually, despite all of the frustration and the sense that, you know, Lincoln really uh, prioritized, you know, white Americans and things like that, that Douglas also judged that he was a pretty phenomenal president who had brought the country through war and to the point of abolishing slavery in a way that, you know, he thought probably nobody else could have. So, you know, it, it's a, it's, did the, did abolitionists claim Lincoln, you know, eventually they did, but, but Douglas's speech is like a really great crystallization of, of, of the different kinds of complexities around that. I, I'm going to, have to go look that speech up. I love that. Um, last question for you. Did the actions Lincoln took, especially around abolition, emancipation, did he change the presidency in any way? Was the presidency different? You know, was it stretched out and strong or different in any way from the presidency, the powers, the office that he uh, took? Yeah, and not only on the question of abolition. I mean, Lincoln really dramatically exercised um, presidential powers that that are powers <laughs> that no he he kind of absorbed to himself powers that no previous president had really done before because he was a wartime president. So you know he also did things that appeared in many ways to be um, you know overly intervening on issues of free speech, um, free expression. Um, so there's a whole other area in which Lincoln is kind of exercising the power of the president in a very strong way. And also the Emancipation Proclamation obviously is an example of a tremendously powerful executive order of the kind that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of Americans kind of have doubts about, you know, really big expansions of presidential power. We want to see Congress um, making the laws and, and kind of most of our policies going through the legislature, which is after all, you know, like represents the people much better than one single president does. And so, 
uh, Lincoln was a, you know, became a very, very strong president. And I think, you know, thinking ahead, that's one of the reasons that, for instance, Franklin Roosevelt, um, you know, often talked about Lincoln as a president who uh, led firmly through a crisis and but also used a lot of power in kind yes. of ways that could be very <laughs> controversial. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that is also really one of Lincoln's legacies. Thank you so much for your time, Kate. I really enjoyed this chat. Same here. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to listening to your Lincoln episode. If you'd like to hear more from Kate, she has a number of books out there that you can read, including Until Justice Be Done, America's First Civil Rights Movement from the Revolution to Reconstruction. Thanks again, Kate. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from you. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Olgar Fife and Drum Corps. Thank you again to Professor Kate Maser for joining the show. In our next episode, I'll talk to historian Harold Holzer about Lincoln's relationship with the press and how he learned to control or influence them in his efforts to implement his policies and win continued support for the Civil War. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>